Master Hagwin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and pass clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi! How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom! What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is Tuesday, the 9th of November, 2021. And uh, we just have another three Taishos from between now um, and the end of the year. And uh, so we're going to take up a theme for these, for these last three Taishos, um, which is um, cultivating right attitudes. That's really for our sitting practice and for our lives. And the, the attitudes that we're going to look into are contentment, interest, confidence, and determination. These are, are set out by um, Guo Gu, Master Guo Gu. He's a, uh, a Dharma heir of um, Master Sheng Yin. And he sets these out these these four right attitudes in his uh, book on silent illumination, which is called Silent Illumination: A Chan Buddhist Path to Natural Awakening. <clears throat> and um, he makes some really helpful points about about our attitudes to practice. Um, so we'll be we'll be reading from and, and commenting on passages from from. 
um, his chapter that is about contentment today and, um, and then looking at the other ones in, in subsequent uh, Taisho's up until the end of the year. Um, this, this, this first one is the one that's perhaps the most striking for a Zen text, contentment, because we don't often talk about it in Zen, except perhaps in the negative as non-grasping. But non-grasping is a bit abstract and a bit tasteless compared with this um, conception of this quality as contentment. It's, it's something we hear quite a lot more about actually within our Theravadan teachings. Um, in Pali, contentment is uh, santuti, um, sometimes translated as satisfaction. And I think it's helpful to put it in a, in a positive way like this. Um, later, we'll come to this, but Guogu says at one point, contentment has the flavor of being at ease. Being at ease, that's something I think we can, we can relate to that is grounded and, and helpful. Often in Zen, the emphasis is, is put on, on questioning, on, on intense striving leading to the arising of the doubt mass. And um, these are also very necessary, but they're sometimes uh, not helpful, not for everybody, in that they can lead to um, excessive tension. Ajahn Brahm, a um, Australian Thai forest tradition teacher based in uh, uh, Western Australia, um, he says, contentment is the middle way between desire and ill will. He also talks about contentment as an antidote to our restlessness. Um, and in, in that he's really pulling in three of the of five hindrances, which are, are often talked about in, in uh, the Theravadan tradition, sensory desire, ill will, sloth and torpor, restlessness, and skeptical doubt. So this contentment we can relate to, to as, an, as um, an antidote to restlessness and also finding a, finding a, a, a path through um, desire and ill will without um, going in either into desire or attachment or, and ill will or aversion. And we'll start, we'll start with a little bit from Ajahn Brahm, where he talks about Contentment. He says, Restless, uh, restlessness arises because we do not appreciate the beauty of contentment. We do not acknowledge the sheer pleasure of doing nothing. 
We have a fault-finding mind rather than a mind that appreciates what's already there. Restlessness in meditation is always a sign of not finding joy in what's here. Whether we find joy or not depends on the way we train our perception. It's within our power to change the way we look at things. Restlessness in meditation is always a sign of not finding joy in what's here. And, and one aspect of this is that we, we um, mistakenly think that our happiness depends on our circumstances. And, we, and when we do that, of course, we, we disempower ourselves. When one of the few things that we can have some sway over is um, how we see things. As, as Judge John Brown says here, um, our happiness depends on how we train our perception, how we see things. He says it is within our power to change the way we look at things. We can look at a glass of water and perceive it as very beautiful, or we can look at it and think of it as ordinary. I think if we do uh, sustained practice, we often get um, um, inklings of um, what it's like to see thing, the things around us without a film of, of judgment blurring them, dulling them. I have uh, early memories of this when, when I first started doing sessions and get to a certain stage of the session, maybe day five or so, and, and it was as if the world around me um, became more crystalline and clear. And really what I was experiencing was the ordinary world minus a whole lot of thoughts that had up until that point obscured things. He says, in meditation we can see the breath as dull, and routine, or we can see it as very beautiful and unique. If we look upon the breath as something of great value, then we won't get restless. And of course, the breath is something of great value. It's our life, literally. If we, if we breathe in and don't breathe out, that's it. That's the end of our life. or vice versa. If we look upon the breath as something of great value, then we won't get restless. We won't go around looking for something else. That's what restlessness is, going around looking for something else to do, 
something else to think about, somewhere else to go. Anywhere but here and now. Restlessness is one of the major hindrances along with sensory desire. Restlessness makes it so hard to sit still for very long. He goes on to say how he will start meditation always with um, a present moment awareness practice just to get over or get beyond that sense of um, wanting to be somewhere other than where we are right now. No matter what this place is, no matter what, how comfortable you make it, restlessness will always say it's not good enough. It looks at your meditation cushion and says it's too big or too small, too hard or too wide. And then he goes on to say, contentment is the opposite of a fault-finding mind. You should develop the perception of contentment with whatever you have, wherever you are, as much as you can. Beware of finding fault in your meditation. I think this is a, an especially important point for many of us. We may, um, to some degree, be able to see beyond finding fault in our environment, but then we find fault in our meditation. Sometimes you may think, I'm not going deep enough. I've been watching the present moment for so long and I'm not getting anywhere. That thought is the very cause of restlessness. It doesn't matter how the meditation is going in your opinion. Be absolutely content with it and it will go deeper. If you're dissatisfied with your progress, then you're only making it worse. So learn to be content with the present moment. Another really, really key point. It doesn't matter how the meditation is going in your opinion. Your, our opinion is, is always from a limited perspective. Watch the silence and be content to be silent. If you're truly content, you don't need to say anything. Don't most inner conversations take the form of complaining, attempting to change things, or wanting to do something else, or escaping into a world of thoughts and ideas and fantasies? Thinking indicates a lack of contentment. If you're truly contented, then you'll be still and quiet. See if you can deepen your, content, your contentment, because it is the antidote for restlessness. Contentment can also be a very, very helpful um, mode when dealing with pain. Ajahn Brahm says, even if you have an ache in the body and don't feel well, you can change your perception and regard that as something quite fascinating, even beautiful. See if you can be content with the ache or pain. See if you can allow it to be. 
A few times during my life as a monk I have been in quite severe pain. Instead of trying to escape, which is restlessness, I turned my mind around to completely accept the pain and be content with it. I have found that it is possible to be content with even severe pain. If you can do that, the worst part of the pain disappears along with the restlessness. There's no wanting to get rid of it. You are completely still with the feeling. The restlessness that accompanies pain is probably the worst part. Get rid of restlessness through contentment and you can even have fun with pain. Develop contentment with whatever you have, the present moment, the silence, the breath. Wherever you are, develop that contentment and from that contentment, out of the very center of that contentment, you'll find your meditation will deepen. So if you ever see restlessness in your mind, remember the word contentment. Contentment looks for what is right and it can keep you still but restlessness will always make you a slave. There is a simile that the Buddha uses. Restlessness is like having a tyrannical master or mistress always telling you, go and get this, go and do that, that's not right, clean up that better, and never giving you a moment of rest. That tyrant is the fault-finding mind. Subdue this tyrant through contentment. Now I'd like to turn to um, Gogo's book, Silent Illumination. And um, this is in a chapter um, called The Underlying Feeling Tones. And he talks about, about these feeling tones first, which gives us a sort of a, a framework for his exploration of contentment. He says, to be free, we must know that we should, what we should be free of. Ordinarily, our minds are cluttered with the thoughts and feelings of everyday living. Sometimes these thoughts are not fully formed concepts, but are simply underlying feeling tones. Most people are aware of these feeling tones, yet it is precise, unaware of these feeling tones, but yet it is precisely these feelings that shape our choices, reasoning, experience, and judgment. So we have to learn to recognize them and work with them by cultivating particular attitudes. 
he's using feeling tones a little bit differently from the way it's usually used. Usually um, the feeling tones are the three um, major ways that we feel things, either pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. But here he uses it more as a way of talking about um, subtle emotion or even even mood. So um, something that we experience um, can experience um, uh, prior to to um, articulating thoughts. He says, in practice, we need to develop an awareness of the overall tone of our internal states. So we could think of it even kind of as, 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 as the, the, the music that is playing in our, in our mind. Quite subtle, but quite influential on our, on our uh, experience. By helping us to clear out the clutter in our minds, meditation exposes these hidden internal states so that we can do something about them. They, they rise up, they rise up to consciousness through us as us in, as a result of us as in. He goes on to talk about the yoga chara consciousness only school of Buddhism that um, uh, talks about the underlying feeling tones and um, describes them as being mental factors. This relates to um, the, the teachings of the skandhas and um, traditionally in, in the Yogacara Buddhism, which we, we've studied when we've looked into the um, Heart Sutra and the Skandhas. And one of the groupings um, under the, the um, heading of the five Skandhas is um, mental formations. And let's try to find them here. Um, The mental formations is the um, fourth of the five skandhas. Consciousness is the, is the fifth. And um, these mental formations are traditionally um, divided into 51 different kinds, considered to be virtuous, unvirtuous, neither or variable. In other words, can be virtuous or can be unvirtuous. Um, there are all kinds of things. Um, include the other skandhas. Attention, concentration, contact, sensation, recognition. Um, just to, to pick out some more examples. Interest, which is one other one we're going to look at later. Faith, carefulness, equanimity. And uh, contentment doesn't figure in this list, but probably it would it would be 
non-attachment is given as as one of the mental formations. So um, you could say there are different kinds of mental climates or weather patterns that that, um, influence how we see and how we experience things. He says um, that at any given moment in waking or sleeping life there is always a mental factor present. If, for example, the mental factor of restlessness is present in your mind, then no matter how you meditate, you will not be able to settle down. I call these mental factors underlying feeling tones, attitudes or moods we need to work with because they are often obstructive or negative. They can colour our experience and prevent us from seeing things as they truly are. They could see them as being like a mist or, or um, a lens that distorts or, or a filter that cuts out certain spectra of light. And, and a very important part of practice is, is recognizing their existence. He says if we become aware of these feeling tones and learn to cultivate the right attitude toward them, then we will feel more grounded. Our wandering thoughts will decrease and we can become more focused in meditation and in life. Master Hongjo refers to the feeling tones as dust-like intentions. Like when you get, when you get dust in your eye. Concerns that conceal the original bright mirror mind of natural awakening. Hongzhou teaches that we have to recognize that there is nothing outside ourselves. If we expose and loosen our grip on these feeling tones, we will not be affected by the objects of our experiencing either, because we no longer experience subject and object as separate, even when we fully engage with the world. Then he quotes um, a little bit of Hong Chu in his own translation. Silent and still, abiding in itself, this suchness is apart from conditioning. Its luminosity is vast and spacious without any dust. Directly, delusion is thoroughly relinquished. Arriving at this fundamental place, you realize that it is not something newly acquired today. Though it is like this, it must be actualized. To actualize it in this moment is to simply not allow a single thing to arise, a single speck of dust to cover it. Be be spaciousness and completely clear. And don't engage with dust-like intentions. Dissolve your concerns. Just take a backward step and open your grasping hands. He says, um, Hong Zhou says here, it is not something newly acquired today. This, this silent, still, abiding self that, he, that he's been talking about. In other words, it's inherent. This luminosity and vast spaciousness, dustless. That's our, our true nature. But we have to actualize it. How do we actualize it? By not allowing a single thing to arise. What this means is 
by not seeing anything as separate, other, subject, object. He says, this, and this is a very well-known statement from Hongzhou, just take a backward step and open your grasping hands. For us to, to step back from our thinking, step back from our, our feeling tones, and, and open our grasping hands. Think of Master y uh, y Uchiyama Roshi, opening the hand of thought. This is what we're called on to do again and again and again when we become aware of these things. And Guagu will go a little bit later, he goes into how we do this. Once we have exposed negative feeling tones, we can foster correct attitudes that resonate with our original freedom. Many of our subtle tendencies are hidden from our awareness. If we are unaware of what's going on inside us, simply practicing seated meditation won't take us too far along the road to liberation. This is why many practitioners, after years of meditation, wonder why it is that they are still vexed by the same people and events in their lives. How can it be that in seated meditation they are able to gain peace, but in the busyness of life they are basically the same people? If we don't expose the subtle tendencies that govern the way we practice and in turn cultivate correct attitudes, we inevitably perpetuate separateness, opposition and self-referential thinking. These subtle undercurrent tendencies manifest as the attitudes we have toward life. We need to expose them and cultivate the right attitudes to bring out our wisdom and compassion. Wasn't to talk about how the, the from a Buddhist perspective, the distinction between thought and feeling is 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 not um, so hard edged. Thought um, may be more fully formed as concepts, um, but feeling tones are like subtle, more subtle forms of of thinking, intentions, perceptions, moods, conditioning, habit subtle thoughts. So you can't fully tease apart thought and feeling. It says there's no clear-cut difference between thoughts and feelings, yet we make a clear divide between them, which then shapes the way that we articulate our inner experience and even understand Buddhism. For example, many people read the Buddhist literature on the importance of having correct view and they interpret it as some kind of knowledge or understanding, in other words, as correct thought. This is only partially correct. In Buddhism, thoughts and feelings are inseparable. If we can cultivate wholesome attitudes, we would naturally have correct understanding of things. Therefore, I emphasize cultivating correct attitudes and becoming more aware of subtle feeling tones.
In other words, he's wanting us to bring our hearts, inclinations, its moods and, and emotions up into consciousness and see them as an aspect of our view. How do we respond to things emotionally? What's our, our kind of default attitude we carry with us through each day? In order to become aware of undercurrent feeling tones, we have to train ourselves to experience them. The more immersed in our inner states we are, the more experienced we become, and the more we're able to navigate them and become skillful practitioners. We have to cultivate some important attitudes in our practice. These attitudes should be cultivated in all aspects of our lives, beyond more mere sitting meditation. And, and I'm going to look more into contentment, but we could apply this to certainly to um, our lives right now in this, in this crucial decade that we're at the beginning of right now. COP26 meeting is going on as, as we speak and um, surely contentment is something we need to cultivate in ourselves and, and in, in society. I was on a, um, listening to a webinar a couple of days ago and one of the speakers was um, an an Anglican Maori woman, name was um, Jacynthia Murphy, and um, she was talking about what what we can learn from from indigenous cultures, and she talked about her own growing up, which she described as poor but lacking nothing. That's a that's a wonderful expression of contentment. We can cultivate right attitudes through a fourfold process of exposing, embracing, transforming, and letting go. When practitioners come across the familiar Buddhist teaching of non-grasping, they think that they have to let go of everything, that this is something they can do right away, and that once they've done so, everything will be fine. The truth is we have to first see what it is we have to let go of. We have to expose our subtle emotional fictions and negative habits. In exposing them, we may recognize that they have been a part of us for a long time, that there is a history behind our behaviors. They may be part of our defense mechanisms and survival skills. So we have to accept them. Only when we accept them will we be able to take responsibility for and work through them then we will no longer be under their influence. This is letting go of them. This, this is a long process and it is not linear but circular. 
I think this is a very important point. We'd just like, we'd love to be able to just get it all done and all straightened out. But that's not how our, our hearts and minds work. He says, the more we're able to see, the more we need to embrace. The more we embrace and let our feelings come through us, the more we are able to expose the deeper layers of our habits. The more, work, the more we work through them, then the more we're able to let go and accept ourselves. In time, we become freer. This letting go is actually the easiest part of the process because it happens naturally and suddenly. But we must first do our preparatory work. We cannot anticipate when these habitual tendencies will release themselves and we cannot will it to happen. Practice is a lifetime process that brings out the best in us. So I think sometimes we can um, confuse letting go or release uh, with getting rid of. I think we have to get rid of our impurities, our negativities. But what Guogu is talking about here is shining a light on our semi-conscious feelings, bringing them up where we can work with them, work through them. And we often come back to the same um, delusion again and again, maybe, maybe as we get at deeper levels, but these, these things come back to us over and over again. And, and the letting go part happens in its own time. It's not subject to our will. All we can do is be, be as honest and as clear about our habitual tendencies as we can be. And then shine enough light on them and they will in their own time release. very important that we see our practice as a lifetime process, not some kind of quick, quick fix. The first attitude we have to cultivate is the feeling of contentment. Contentment counters and overrides a constant tendency to grasp and chase after things. Contentment has the flavor of being at ease, grasping nothing, lacking nothing. It is being open and leisurely. In this state, we don't make anything into a big deal, while at the same time we engage with the freshness of each moment. Cultivating an attitude of contentment is engaging with and yet not grasping at causes and conditions. We are swayed by causes and conditions when we feel a sense of lack and when grasping is present. We inevitably get sucked into the vortex of grasping and rejecting, having and lacking. These polarities bring up all sorts of other issues, 
such as trying to escape from who we are or, alternately, trying desperately to be someone we're not. And, you know, this is in terms of, of the causes and, content and, and conditions of discontent, we live within um, consumer culture, which, which is um, driven by exciting dis dissatisfaction in people. Dissatisfaction, distraction. This is this is the what is the driver of our um, industrial economy. The need to be always growing and acquiring. There is no formulaic way of, to cultivate contentment or non-grasping. We need to personally explore the flavour of contentment and digest this feeling little by little, becoming familiar with it in our lives. We can't just force this attitude on ourselves and expect to be able to plough through all of our problems. Contentment is not a mere concept. We need to appreciate the depth of what it means to be content. It is not just being disinterested or detached from everything. Its, it's um, essential ingredient of this contentment is acceptance at, at, a, at an emotional level, at a heart level. Acceptance of our own circumstances, of our, of our karma in this moment. When we're content, we appreciate what we have and we are able to engage fully with whatever we may arise. There's a freshness to it. With contentment, we're able to avail ourselves openly of everything without rejecting anything. In this process, there may be pain and grief, but we are cultivating the ability to feel fully, to be present to whatever arises without judgment. Allowing such feelings to move through us will make us stronger. We are incredibly resilient. Our hearts and minds will eventually accept and release whatever comes through us. To do this, we have to be in tune with the body and anchor ourselves in it. Contentment resides in the heart and it has an associated bodily component. The easiest way to become familiar with contentment is to physically relax the body. We relax from the crown of the head to the toes, section by section. We relax the skin, pores, muscles and tendons. This means actually feeling different areas of our body. Most people are so out of tune with their bodies that they don't really know how to relax or what their bodies feel. So this requires practice. Um, especially, especially if we're coming to our sitting from a lot of busyness, if our mind is racing, then just to take the first part of our first round of sitting and um, just take time to inhabit the body to 
in a sense, do a kind of roll call of the different parts of the body. Just, just putting our awareness in each each part in order to let it soften and and be present. Being in tune with bodily feelings of contentment and non-grasping releases physical pain. For example, sometimes after long hours of sitting meditation, we experience waves of bodily pain and an attitude of repulsion sets in. Naturally, we want to escape the pain. If we are oblivious to the subtle undertone of repulsion, the pain becomes more acute and intractable. Soon our whole body is burning up. However, when we expose what is happening within us, we can detect whether we are feeling aversion. Perhaps we are bolstering this discomfort with stories and images. Is there an underlying tone of fear? When aversion is present, pain becomes exaggerated. So if any of these negative feelings are present, we need to first expose our attitude and then relax the body physically. Only then will it become easier to soften our negative feelings and to release them. Actually, the exposing and relaxing are, in themselves, a way of working with these negative feelings. Just bringing awareness to our pain acts on it, transforms it. We, we experience this again and again and again. But if we can't recognize how we're feeling and how it is shaping our actual experience, how can we let go of negative mental states? So coming back to this need for us to recognize these states, and these, these um, barely conscious feeling tones first, and then we can, we can uh, move in the direction of letting go. Contentment is traditionally expressed in Chan as non-grasping. In the platform scripture, Master Hui Nung, the, the sixth ancestor, provides three principles to deal with it. No thought, no form, and non-abiding. These three principles are antidotes to our grasping of our inner world, outer relations, and identity. So no thought for our inner world, no form for our outer relations, and non-abiding for our sense of identity. In order to appreciate these three principles, we need to recognize grasping as a deep-seated feeling tone. It's a sense of lack, a thirst for something. Of course, being discontented can bring about change for the better in our lives, but here I'm referring to a habit of possessiveness which arises from self-grasping. He's, he's talking about these, these um, often strong beliefs we'll have about ourselves of being in some way fundamentally 
wrong or lacking or um, deficient. That we, uh, he says, a habit of possessiveness where we, we own these things as being who we are, part of our, our um, secret identity. A habit of possessiveness which arises from self-grasping. I am such and such. He quotes again Huaynang. Good friends, since the past, this teaching of ours has first taken no thought as its principle, no form as its essence, and non-abiding as its foundation. No thought means to be without thought in the midst of thinking. No form is to transcend form within the context of forms and appearances. Non-abiding is your fundamental nature. All worldly things are empty. Thoughts, feelings and narratives are what we grasp internally. Form is what we grasp externally and this can include our bodies, objects, environments, status, wealth and appearances. None of these objects of grasping are in and of themselves bad. Sometimes they're needed to help us navigate through life and improve our circumstances. However, when our grasping is driven by possessiveness and obsession, it brings about suffering for ourselves and others. Non-abiding is just a Chan way of saying non-grasping. Everything is fluid, changing, open to opportunities. This is how things, including ourselves, are. Nothing is fixed, rigid. How can anything be grasped? It's when we see the impossibility of uh, grasping onto anything that we start to open our hand of thought. Grasping and rejecting are always based on our self-referential obsessions. If we are captivated or repulsed by whatever comes up in our practice, then it gains power over us and the problem becomes worse. We can probably all of us recognize this and there may be uh, dark convictions that we have about ourselves, about the world that that fit into this category. Things that, that gain power over us, that... that um, because of how maybe how ashamed we are of them, that uh, and we feel strong aversion towards them, that they they become uh, they loom in our minds. They, they get power over us because we've given power to them. When difficulties arise, it is important to see them clearly, accept them work with them and let them go. The true nature of things is non-abiding, fresh and dynamic. Relating to our feelings and thoughts through grasping and rejecting ruins everything. If we grasp at them, then we're going against their nature. We suffer and probably cause everyone around us to suffer as well. When we grasp and reject, we're ultimately concerned with me, I and mine. 
we're thinking self-referentially. The opposite of thinking, grasping and abiding is contentment. And it's the, it's the most important of all the attitudes to cultivate in order to see our inner experiences and outer relations as our true nature. Concerned with I, me and mine. Concerned with um, seeking control over our experience. And of course there's so little we can actually control. thinking that we're at the center of every story. When the stories are vast and intricate and we're just one player within those stories. Well, our time is up. We'll um, continue with this uh, teaching of Master Huay Nung um, in the next Taisho. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attend.